Let's turn our attention to 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 11. And what I've chosen for a, a title is Sound Doctrine, the Key Ministry Deliverable. If you've been in many meetings at uh, Bob Jones, you know that usually they end on the note of what are the deliverables on that question. And so what that does is that kind of causes you to hone in on what do we really take away from this meeting? What are we supposed to do from here? What's the, what is the, the key thing that needs to, to occupy our, our thinking? On another note, did you know it's terrible to grow grass in the South? It's absolutely a daily battle. He's better at it than I am. I know that. He's given me some helpful advice. But my grass has got 4 million weeds in it. I calculated the other day that if I pulled 100 weeds every day, I'll never catch up. I, I Because more will grow. And so... And I, you say, well, are you against herbicides? My, my grass thinks that we live next to a chemical factory. I put so much herbicides on to kill the weeds. So, and then it kills grass in, the, in, the, in so doing when you put that much on, and so that's part of the battle. So I'm going to get a guy to come and to kind of reseed things and there's one thing I want to see. I want one key deliverable. I want green thick grass. All right? So you better deliver. You need to pray for me and my attitude. So if we look at this passage, there really is one thing that I think above all other things Paul is trying to get across. And that is the need for sound doctrine in our churches. So in this passage, there, are, there actually are three sentences that occupy these verses. And what we have is delivering sound doctrine is a stewardship that's given to each of us. Each of us. Delivering sound doctrine is always connected with a godly lifestyle. And delivering sound doctrine requires careful and painstaking study. And the third one is more of an implication than, than anything. So let's start with this first one. Paul says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, when you jump ahead and you read the, the entire book, and I'm sure some of you have done that in pre preparation for our chapel series, you see that Timothy has got a pretty big task ahead of him. Paul is heading to Macedonia. We don't know where he's at exactly when he's making that um, statement. But he's telling Timothy 
you need to stay at Ephesus. Timothy's already there. You need to stay in Ephesus so that you can take care of some things. And this thing, the problem of false teaching, is, is really the biggest thing uh, for him to be able to approach. But it's, it's a really challenging assignment that, that he's got to do. So here's his to-do list, if I could say it that way. He's got to get rid of all the false teachers. Then he's got to correct the false doctrine that was instilled within the church, that the people that actually followed the false teaching. Then he's got to deal with believers who had unwisely followed Hymenaeus and Alexander. Then he's got to get the church refocused on what it's supposed to be doing because it's, it has swerved from the pathway. He's got to reestablish proper roles between men and women. Evidently, there's a problem there. Chapter 2. He's got to evaluate qualifications for pastors and deacons. You know, think about this. How did they let this happen? Aren't they responsible in some way? How did they let this happen? This church was a, uh, a church, an orthodox church that held to uh, orthodox doctrine. How'd they let it happen? And then, you know, behind it all, he's got to battle Satan or demons. And in fact, in, in just about every segment of this book, you see that, that uh, Satan or demons are, are behind what's going on. And then he's got to set guidelines for the, for the elderly, chapter 5. He's got to deal with the rich, which is no easy task when you have wealthy people in your, in your church who have um, nothing wrong with having wealth, but, but it's very easy to desire wealth and to make that your, your goal and focus in life. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty significant to-do list that he's got here. Now, perhaps you're thinking to yourself, how did this happen to the church at Ephesus? You know, when, when, when we read the book of Ephesians, we don't see this stuff going on, right? I mean, we see a lot of glorious things being spoken of there, but we don't see all of this false teaching. And as we go through this book, we're going to see that that topic comes up again and again and again, and Paul elaborates on it in many different ways. Uh, ways. So think about this. <clears throat> Paul's second miss missionary journey probably took place around 50 to 52 uh, AD. And the third missionary journey was, um, of course, following after that, starting with about AD 52 to 55. And one of the things that he, that Paul did during this, um, this third missionary journey is he spent three and a half years at Ephesus, the longest period of time that he had spent uh, anywhere uh, on his, in his uh, missionary journeys, establishing that church, establishing discipleship, preaching and teaching, and so forth. And then, of course, he went on his way, and then he circled around to head for Jerusalem, and on the way to Jerusalem... He stopped at a little place called Miletus and gathered the pastors from Ephesus 
at Miletus. He didn't have time to go into Ephesus itself, but he got all the pastors there, and what did he do? He said, see if I have this. This warning about coming false teachers. And he said, they're coming. You need to prepare. This was about A.D. 55. And then we fast forward to 1 Timothy, where Paul's asking Timothy or telling Timothy to stay in Ephesus to deal with this problem of false teachers. So how many years? We're talking about maybe anywhere from 7 to 11 years, something like that. So it's shocking that that happened so soon. Now, what do they focus on? Uh, these false teachers are devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, I don't think that this is speaking against the Chronicles, uh, so we can take that off the situation. I think something's going on here because um, you, had, you had Jewish uh, teachers who who supposedly had accepted Jesus, and so they 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 felt themselves to be part of the church, and they're traveling to different places, and they are they are teaching Jewish myths, and these endless genealogies are 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 part of that, the kinds of things that they're doing with with um, these genealogies. And what do these uh, myths do? They promote speculations. Let me take you to one, one uh, particular uh, myth. And if, I, if you will um, permit me, if I could walk you through this um, particular one. Tobit was of the tribe of Naphtali, supposedly. He was carried away in the, the, uh, the northern deportation to Nineveh. And like Daniel and Nehemiah, he rose up in the ranks and actually directly served the king of Assyria. He was a purveyor, which is a buyer of luxury items for the king. So he made a lot of money. And one day he went on a trip to a place called Media, where he left a fortune in silver that actually belonged to him. He left this silver with this friend for safekeeping. He was worried about security and that kind of thing where he lived. So he was going to plan on coming back. Uh, the king died, and then a bad king took his place named Sennacherib. Maybe you know that name. Tobit could not retrieve his fortune at that time. He was restricted to his travel, and he was not in good with this particular king. His particular piety involved burying dead Israelites. And so if someone was uh, killed by the government or some authority and they, they would leave the body out for an example, Tobit would go and, and, and secretly take that body and bury um, that, that person. He was discovered, he lost his position and he lost all of his possessions. He was fearful to go home one evening, so he slept outside the walls of the city, and unfortunately, a bird flew over his head, and while looking up, delivered droppings into both of his eyes, and he was blinded from that time forward. His wife, Anna, now had to get a job. 
since he really couldn't work and was, you know, lost his job anyway. And during her work, she stole something from her employer, so she was cast out. They were both outcasts, and at that, and at that point, he prayed to die. He wanted to die. Meanwhile, meanwhile, on the same day that he prayed, miles away, a young woman named Sarah was accused of killing seven men, all dying on their wedding night to her. And she said, I'm pure. I didn't do anything. So she, too, prayed to die. God heard both of their, pray their prayers and sent the angel Raphael to help heal them. But Asmodeus, an evil spirit, determined to stop the angel since he was responsible for the blindness and the seven deaths. Tobit remembered his fortune at that time and sent his son Tobias to fetch it. So at least he could help his son before he died. So he instructs Tobias to be pious in this particular letter and to get married from one of his family. So Tobias headed out on his journey, and part of his journey involved walking along the Tigris River. He became thirsty. He knelt down to drink some water, and at that very moment, a very, very, very large fish jumped out of the water and tried to devour Tobias. Tobias battled the fish and killed it. The angel appeared and told Tobias to take the heart, liver, and gall because he would need them. No explanation. Tobias arrived at the house where he was to find his father's fortune and discovered that there was a beautiful woman named Sarah who lived there. He heard the dreadful story that every time she tried to get married, the groom died on the wedding night. Seven in a row died. Tobias married her that evening. He was number eight. Following a great time of joy, they left to see, oh, left something out. The angel instructed Tobias to take the heart and liver of the fish and form an ointment, light it on fire, and put it in the wedding chamber. That did the trick. It drove away the evil spirit. Tobias married her that evening. Following a great time of joy, they left to see Tobias's father, Tobit, who is blind, Tobias took the gall and formed an ointment with it and then spread it on his dad's eyes. He was immediately healed of his blindness, and wow, he got the girl, the fortune, and his dad's eyesight back. End of story. Isn't that fun? That's in the Bible. This is my wife's Catholic Bible. My wife grew up in a Catholic home and she became a believer because of the neighbors next door who, who shared the gospel over the chain link fence. And as a believer, she began to read the Bible. She was, she was eight years old, but they would only permit her to have a Catholic Bible. So this is the actual Bible, and she was not allowed another Bible until the day that I married her. She was also unbaptized until I married her. So that's interesting, isn't it? It's also contained in the original King James Version. It's also part of the Orthodox Church canon. It's read at weddings 
in our country. And I even saw a children's video about Tobit among Bible stories for children. There's like 100 Bible stories, and it's one of them. So it's a fable. It's filled with crazy stuff and historical and scientific inaccuracies. Now, we probably don't have preachers presenting Jewish fables like Tobit from the pulpit today, but the church of every era since its founding has experienced distractions from teaching and preaching the word of God. God has given us, you and me, the stewardship of the word of God. As some of you will be pastors, we may bring things to a church where we minister, but they need sound doctrine more. We may bring organization to a church, but they need sound doctrine more. We may bring close relationships to a church through small groups, but they need sound doctrine more. We may bring great programs to a church, but they need sound doctrine more. Paul focuses on the the results of, of deviating from Scripture in teaching and preaching. It promotes speculations rather than stewardship from God. What is this stewardship? It is the responsibility to proclaim the word, to proclaim the truth of God. I like what uh, Lay and, and Griffin say in the, in the New American Commentary, which is part of your Logos collection. Paul feared that the Ephesians might spend so much time in fruitless discussion of novel doctrines that they would not carry out God's plan of bringing people to a place of obedience and faith before Jesus. So, this first part of the passage emphasizes the importance of of sound doctrine as a stewardship, as a responsibility for which you and I will stand before the Lord someday. The second sentence in this passage is, is this connection that exists between sound doctrine and a godly life. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they made make confident assertions. So these three things that Paul brings to the forefront, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith really those those three things are you know have overlapping uh, dimensions to them but I think we all get the message that that this he's talking about an individual who's not just speaking words he's talking about a a, a, a teacher a preacher 
who is living out his faith faithfully day by day. And as a result, love fills that believer's life. And that love allows him to, to minister. It allows him to give of himself because he's faithfully walking with the Lord day by day. We're talking about a sanctified life, right? 1 Peter 2.2 2 talks about newborn babes desiring the sincere milk of the word so that you may grow. We heard yesterday, perhaps some of you did, of a well-known pastor whose, whose life evidently does not line up with his doctrine. And so he had to step down from ministry. I hope it's, I hope it's not serious. Always do. I, I hope that there's, there's a way to, uh, for him to uh, find his way back. And I think that our response, my response, should be that this could be me, right? This could be you, except for the grace of God. And we, we only know part of the story. And I think that if I read Proverbs correctly, I ought to, I ought to receive instruction from kind, the, the kinds of things that happen in this way. Notice at the end of this uh, sentence that these, these teachers, these false teachers, desire to be teachers of the law, but without understanding, and they, they, they don't know what they're talking about, for one thing, and, they, and they're so confident in their, in their statements, it makes it sound like they know what they're talking about, but they really don't. So this is perhaps a, a sneak preview. Uh, this comes from 1 Timothy 6.3, so one of our other faculty will be presenting this. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So further development of, of that idea that that my, my message and my life have to be one cohesive, consistent whole. Otherwise, my, my message is invalidated. Third thing, third sentence, occupying these three verses, um, 8 through 11, is that delivering sound doctrine requires careful and painstaking study. So how do we get to there? Paul says they want to be teachers of the law, yet they, they obviously do not understand the law. So Paul opens here with, now we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully or, or properly or correctly. 
So he says the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. And he's got this list. And um, on the next slide, you'll see the, you'll see the list uh, there. But I want to make the, the point that some would say, well, this is, he's just, he's not really talking about the Ten Commandments. Um, he's talking about the, the, um, these rules that they've come up with and so forth, and they really don't understand what they're saying. I, I would beg to differ with that. And I know this is small, but I wanted it to be all on one slide. You can see that there are three pairs of, um, of sinners that are put together there. And, and so I've summarized that as those who align themselves against God and his word. They're diametrically opposed to God and his word. The law is written for their sake. But then, and, and perhaps that is some reference to the first part of the Ten Commandments, the kind of the rejection of God. But then we see uh, that there are father and mother killers um, or strikers. They're, that um, entails the fifth and sixth commandment, murderers, the, the sixth commandment, fornicators, the seventh commandment, homosexuals, the seventh commandment, slave dealers, you're stealing people, uh, the eighth commandment, liars, the ninth commandment, perjurers, when you actually uh, testify against uh, somebody falsely, the ninth commandment, and then anything else, he says, that is contrary to sound teaching, and I put in there, maybe he's talking about at least the Tenth Commandment there, and probably other things. But it seems like he is directly uh, saying that, that these people do not um, even begin to understand uh, the, this, the, the Old Testament and what was laid out in the Mosaic Covenant. And, and admittedly, that's not an easy topic, especially when we're talking about living in the church age that we're in, and how does that relate? Well, I recommend you read uh, Dr. Casillas's book where he solved all the problems on this particular topic. It really is helpful, indeed. Um, so, let me conclude this. We might ask the question, how does this happen in a church today? Well, usually starts with a person. Some person that brings some idea, some practice into the church. Then a following occurs. People start to follow. And then the church seriously gets off track. This happened in my church. The church I grew up in. The church that, that I went to as a young person and found the Lord Jesus Christ, and was discipled. And it happened because of, primarily because of a, a, a person that came into our church who was um, very, very talented, well-educated, 
eloquent, he was the president of the student body at Bob Jones. And he, he married the pastor's daughter and he came in and began to subtly teach things. Now, I was a teenager. Me and my friends revered him. We thought he was the best thing ever. And so we spent as much time as we could with him. A lot of people did. And then he started a business. And he started to make a lot of money. And, and the church had a Christian school, and they could, we could never afford to put up a gymnasium. So we had to borrow, you know, other gymnasiums and just really wanted a, a gymnasium for our Christian school. And so everybody saw him making all this money, and he said, I'll build that Christian school. I'll pay for all of it. And then people began to invest in his business. Some of my friends gave everything that they had to him. A couple years down the road, it was found out that all that money was gone, spent. There was no, no financial windfall. All the money was gone. All of these good people lost everything they had. And by the way, you know what that does to a church when you have that going on in the church body and you have somebody that's influencing like that? The focus became, they would say, hey, that guy over there, he's a multimillionaire because he invested in this guy's. That's what was happening in the church. It's no wonder that it doesn't exist today. That church is gone. Well, he was arrested um, by the FBI for money laundering. He moved to Greenville, of all places. And I saw his picture in the newspaper from a bank that he had just robbed. He's robbed several banks. I don't know if he's in jail right now. We spent a lot of time in jail. And I'm telling you, he was one of the best preachers I've ever heard. So it can happen. We have a big, big responsibility to guard the faith, to hold to sound doctrine. Let's pray. Father, help us. These are sobering things for us to read. And we know that this is a warning to us. This is a challenge to us. This is a privilege for us to hold to your word, to live it out in our lives. Lord, none of us align perfectly with your word. We, we fail every day. Please, Lord, change us into the image of Jesus Christ. And we'll praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen.